Good morning. It's Monday, the 4th of March, and this is Gobind Rajati Raj broadcasting from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Well, we are well into the month of March now, the last month of the last quarter of the financial year. And now the top stories and themes for the day. Holiday trading takes markets to new highs, sustaining it might be tough. Latest GDP numbers have caused some head scratching across the country. What should one really focus on? India's wealthier are growing faster than elsewhere in the world and a billion dollar gift that ought to inspire many. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. Holiday trading takes markets up. Now, this was not a regular weekend for the stock markets in India with special trading sessions on Saturday on the National Stock Exchange and the Bombay Stock Exchange to test disaster preparedness and business continuity. Now, this is a normal feature and it happens pretty often. Not so normal, of course, was the fact that the markets rose again to new highs or is that normal too? The BSC Sensex hit a fresh all-time high of 73,995 and eventually closed 61 points up at 73,806. The Nifty 50 hit a new high of 22,420 and closed 40 points higher at 22,378. A stock that did well was Tata Steel, which rose 3.5% to 155 rupees and was the top gainer amongst the Sensex 30 stocks. The high GDP numbers were priced into the market's rise on Friday and then of course that special trading day on Saturday. There are thus not many triggers for Monday, which could make it more of a demand-supply phenomenon. The only shift is that foreign portfolio investors are now net buyers in February, having bought about 1,530 crores worth of shares. As is well known now, foreign investor selling is not having much of an impact on the market itself because of the strong counterforce of domestic buying and retail money. FIs had sold quite heavily in January and February for that matter. They offloaded shares worth about 24,000 crores. Now on Wall Street, markets were strong, also in some ways keeping the global sentiment for stocks high, which will obviously wash over India as well. On Friday, the Nasdaq Composite rose to an all-time high, surpassing the 2021 record as investors poured into mega-cap technology stocks. The tech-heavy Nasdaq moved up about 1.1% to 16,274, and the S&P 500 also was up to 5,137, the first close above the 5,100 threshold, which we've been referring to in recent days. Chip maker and giant NVIDIA, which is now up about 260% in the last year, was up another 4% on Friday. India's ultra-wealthy population is growing faster than the rest of the world. Sticking to wealth and wealth going up, Knight Frank's flagship The Wealth Report 2024 has said that the number of ultra-high net worth individuals or UHNWIs in India is expected to expand to about 20,000 by 2028 from about 13,000 right now, which is in five years' time. UHNWIs are worth at least $30 million or more, being the benchmark. This means that India will see a roughly 50% growth in ultra-high net worth individuals in the next five years. In contrast, the number of wealthy individuals globally is expected to increase by about 28%. In the year 2023, the number globally rose by about 4.2% to about 626,000 or 0.6 million. The year-on-year change in India was recorded at 6.1%. So you can see that the growth rate of ultra-high net worth individuals in India is more than the rest of the world at a total of about 13,263 in 2023, 
against obviously a lower number the year before. Moreover, and thanks to perhaps everything else that we've been talking about, including the markets, India's ultra-high net worth individuals are bullish about their prospects and fortunes. The Knight Frank report says 90% of Indian UHNWIs are expecting to see an increase in their wealth during the year 2024, that's this year. 63% are expecting to witness a significant increase of more than 10% in their wealth value. Meanwhile, Mumbai is now ranked 8th in terms of global growth in terms of annual luxury residential price rise, putting it squarely in the top 10 in the world. And finally, almost a third or 32% of India's ultra-high net worth individuals' wealth is allocated towards residential real estate class. So one-third of the wealth of most or rather the richest Indians is going towards real estate. Also, some 14% of that residential portfolio is actually allocated outside India. About 12% of India's ultra-high net worth individuals plan to buy a new home in 2024 and that obviously means that prices will either be stable to higher. To get a sense on what these numbers mean, that is the rise in numbers mean from a broader economic standpoint as well, I caught up with Gulam Zia, Executive Director at Knight Frank, and I began by asking him to explain the relevance of these numbers, at least to the larger wealth market. Something which is pretty evident by now, you know, because when I as an Indian talk about that number, the global audience may want to give some kind of a bias to that. However, the economic situation of India vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world is pretty prominent. You know, many of the economies, like at least UK, I hear, is almost on the verge of recession. US is looking at 2.5-3% of growth. China has at about 3% odd growth in the economy, etc. And in, in all that backdrop, India is perhaps the only country where the economic growth last year was 7 plus percent. And the first quarter of this year, as we are looking at last quarter, we are looking at 8.4 or odd percent of growth in the economy, which is directly connected to how many UHNIs are we creating. So the rate of growth of the ultra-rich all over the world for the next five years is looking like about 27, 28-odd percent. And for India, it is double of that. And hence the numbers that you spoke about from 13,000 to 20,000 odd that we're talking about in the next four to five years is a great jump. And that jump is obviously directly related to the growth of economy where many of them are expanding their wealth by contributing to the tech economy and getting a lion's share out of that. So the growth of UHNIs is directly connected to the economy and which is in front of all of us. Right. So now what's the next sort of outcome of this? So, I mean, are you seeing them? Your study says that 12% of India's ultra net worth, high net worth individuals will buy a new home in 2024. And what does that mean in terms of either the size of the house or the amount of money that's going into real estate? Uh, something worth noticing while you spoke one side of it, which is 12% of uh, those UHNIs that we are numbering are going to buy the next house, one more house in the next year. But that number itself is growing because I said to answer my last question that the number of HNIs, UHNIs are increasing year after year at a breakneck speed in India. Number one. And number two, some more statistics. About 32 to 35 odd percent, almost one third of their wealth, they are assigning to buying real estate, which is a huge number in itself. You know, which means that uh, the luxury home purchase in India shall continue maybe at a greater pace compared to what it was last year. Like uh, last, I think we, you, we were, you and I spoke about it, the growth of luxury real estate in India some time back. 
and till then these numbers were not with us now with the ultra rich and their behaviors and their uh, expectations to buy homes are also now on record it supports it supports the logic or the argument that the luxury real estate or buying of uh, you know high end upper end houses shall continue like for example i think talking about it gurgaon hasn't seen which is a part of delhi hasn't seen houses of 100 crore selling which is now becoming more and more common it was only mumbai for last so many years which was selling upper end of houses and the values even in delhi which is number 2 were not that high but that is also shooting up which means the demand for upper end of the houses is not just in mumbai now expanding it to say delhi and bangalore and the rate of growth if you look at it the rate of growth in the following year or two in mumbai it we have already in the top 10 lead of the world so while dubai etc were at the highest end of the increase in rate of high end properties mumbai has broken into the top 10 league is at number 8 and delhi is also about 36 odd rank in the all over the world cities where the rate of growth of property values is high even bangalore is also at about 59th position globally which means that not just one but multiple cities in india are fueling the growth of upper end housing which is directly connected to number increase in the the increase in the number of the ultra high net worth individuals gulab thank you so much for joining me my pleasure thank you so much take care what india's latest gdp numbers mean The latest GDP data says India will end the year with a GDP growth of 7.6%, up from the 7.3% projected just two months ago. The numbers were a surprise since the most optimistic of economists did not get it right, as we discussed on Friday as well. Like in all such good stories, a backgrounder is emerging. New Indian Express columnist and well-known economic journalist Shankar Iyer points out, as did Quantico economist Vivek Kumar on Friday on the Core Report, that the upgrade in growth follows a flurry of revisions for previous years and quarters. Growth for 2022-23 was scaled down and revised upwards for the current year's first three quarters, including the revelation that obviously shook everyone. The economy, that is the Indian economy, grew at 8.4 percent between October and December 2023. Shankar also alludes to the much larger generator, as he calls it, on the 8.4 percent GDP growth, while the gross value added or GVA for the period was 6.5 percent, which is the same period. Be that as it all may, I reached out to Shankar Iyer to get a sense on these numbers, but. more from a point of view what we should be looking at for in the granular details when these numbers emerge as they do every quarter and sometimes when they tend to surprise us it's telling us that there have been revisions and so the economy the gdp looks better it also tells us that quality of professional forecasting in india has a lot to catch up because this uh, has beaten all other forecasts that we had on the gdp but essentially govin what this gdp number tells us is that we have growth that is indisputable because it's visible in the spend of the government it is visible in the tax collections it is visible in the earnings of companies involved in infrastructure it is visible in earnings of manufacturing companies it's also obviously in very visible in the stock market in this as which are at record highs it also tells us and which is why i wrote the piece that we must focus on the granular details of the economy and the granular details of the economy tell us 
that while the investment led growth is a good idea for the government to lead the way two things are very apparent one is the private consumption which sort of reflects where the incomes are coming so in the us and in other advanced economies there is constantly a debate as to how much of the gdp growth is available to the citizen on a per capita basis because they are concerned about inequality in our case the debate is a much wider one because unless you have consumption which accounts for over 65% of the gdp you can't sustain a investment led growth now there are a lot of people particularly in the government who have gone on to say that we are okay with investment led growth now that might be okay for a short while but the hope should be that consumption will catch up because that makes it sustainable that makes it broader that makes it more inclusive the second part is that private capex hasn't quite taken off and the most important thing for me as a country with a young demography which is adding 8 to 10 million force is the subpar performance of agriculture which accounts for 45% of the workforce and services sector which is one of the largest employers of white collar and other jobs i mean you know india's economy is still a very service sector economy and if the service sector is not growing at its usual double digit rate it means that we will have lower consumption lower employment and poorer per capita distribution right so you've talked about both services as well as agriculture now agriculture you've said is likely to end the year with a 0.7% growth so now i'm assuming the growth in itself is not the issue as much as the fact that it employs a large number of people and therefore their incomes are clearly slowing down or have slowed down so here's how i see it you have about two thirds of the economy is located in the rural economy in the rural india and agriculture is the backbone of a large part of the households budgets in the economy now when agriculture doesn't grow at a certain pace you have it reflected in the consumption pattern in the rural economy and this has been sort of amplified by fmcg companies durables the sale of entry level goods and stuff and this has been the narrative what is more concerning is that this low growth is reflected in the consumption story and the consumption is poor despite the fact that the government has aggressively intervened with welfare measures and so the issue is that if we are to lift people out of the low income low productivity domains then a lot more needs to be done on the policy front that's part one the second part is i think somewhere it has to be recognize that this can't be left for another day you know we have kicked down kicked the can down the roads on agriculture for far too long right so the other and you've drawn some contrast and i'm i'm guessing you're also triangulating or asking your reader to triangulate in some ways where you're saying that you know when you have 4.8 million people applying for 60000 jobs which is in itself not a new thing but this is this happened just recently more and more cases of exam paper leaking and these are typically exams i'm assuming where you get jobs at the end of it 
so all of this is also reflecting something so if you look at the granular data you realize that there is a reason why private consumption is at 3% even though the gdp is growing at 7.6% a it is investment led growth b there is inadequate creation of jobs and that is reflected in the kind of demand for jobs the pressure on jobs i mean 4.8 million people applying for 60000 jobs should be a record of sorts but let that be at one level you look at campus placements this year in management colleges in engineering colleges they are poor the third part is the white collar uh, jobs are mostly created in the financial sector and in the it and services sector and we have not paid much attention to what is the potential implication of the accelerated adoption of generative ai in the advanced economies going the fortune 500 companies are investing as much as over 200 billion dollars in generative ai what happens in the west doesn't stay in the west these technologies these aspects will visit our economy so my point of the column was that while we have grown much better than predicted that we are doing well in terms of creating infrastructure there is a need for a serious debate on the underlying factors or underlying data or as the americans would say to look under the hood of this gdp when you say look under the hood what do you look for what are the one or two things that you typically look for beyond the headline number to get a sense on whether things are ticking along fine or not so ai see for look for consistency in sectoral growth i see the segments which employ the maximum people how are they doing i look for private consumption as a reflection of that and so what we have today is an infrastructure spend led thanks to government's push in railways and roads and our power and that has created demand for certain kinds of manufacturing and certain kinds of services but it's not broad based and we needs to be broad based to create employment to make prosperity available to a larger number of people shankar thank you so much for joining me thank you govin always a pleasure a 1 billion dollar gift that should inspire many a heartwarming story of philanthropy which will hopefully inspire others across the board and across the world the 93 year old widow of a wall street financier has donated a billion dollars to a bronx medical school the albert einstein college of medicine in new york with instructions that the gift be used to cover tuition fees for all students going forward the new york times has reported the donor ruth gottesman is a former professor at einstein where she studied learning disabilities and developed a screening test and ran literacy programs this donation is one of the largest charitable donations to an educational institution in the united states and most likely the largest to a medical school the fortune came from her late husband david gottesman known as sandy who was a protege of warren buffett and had made an early investment in berkshire hathaway the conglomerate mr warren buffett built which of course makes it a story to talk about at many levels the donation is notable not just for its size but also because it's going to a medical institution in the bronx the city's poorest borough the new york times says the bronx has a high rate of premature deaths and ranks as the unhealthiest county in new york 
Over the past generation, the New York Times says, a number of billionaires have given hundreds of millions of dollars to better-known medical schools and hospitals in Manhattan, the city's wealthiest borough. Dr. Gottesman said her donation should and would enable new doctors to begin their careers without medical school debt, which often exceeds $200,000. She also hoped it would broaden the student body to include people who could not otherwise afford to go to medical school. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs>